The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Emmanuel Macron has beaten Marine Le Pen in the French presidential election. What now for the French art scene? Plus, Walter Sickert in London and Gordon Parks in Pittsburgh. Now that the pro-European centrist Emmanuel Macron has defeated the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen in France, I speak to Anaël Pija, editor-at-large at the art newspaper France, about the Macron government's cultural record so far and what we can expect from his second term. Tate Britain has opened an exhibition of work by another Eurocentric, the late 19th and early 20th century British painter Walter Sickert. I take a tour of the show with one of its curators, Thomas Kennedy. And for this episode's Work of the Week, Tom Seymour talks to Dan Lears of the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh in the United States about the Cooper's Room, a photograph in the museum's new exhibition, Gordon Parks in Pittsburgh. Before all that, the art newspaper has a spring sale in which you can get a 50% discount on the complete and digital-only subscriptions. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe and enter the promo code SPRINGPOD. That's all one word and all in capital letters, SPRINGPOD. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening now and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, last weekend in the French election runoff, Emmanuel Macron won a second term as French president, beating the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen. Macron won 58.5% of the vote to Le Pen's 41.5%, meaning that 13 million people, a historic high, voted for Le Pen's anti-immigration party. But what does this mean for the visual arts in France? I spoke to Anaël Pija, editor-at-large at the art newspaper France and presenter of the podcast Phenomaton, about what we can expect. Anaël, Macron is back in power. One thing I wanted to ask you about to begin with was how vigorous was public support from the art world for him? Obviously, we know that the art world was largely against Le Pen, but was there much very pro-Macron in terms of the voices from the art world? Well, I think, yes, the the position of the art world was very clear. Uh, For instance, there was a very strong text published on Change.org, initiated by Emmanuel Thiblou, director of École Nationale Supérieure des Arts Décoratifs, and that was signed by many very important museum directors like Chris Durkan, the head of the Grand Palais, like Eric de Chassé, the director of the National Institute of Art and History, for instance, and many other people. So yes, that was a clear support of Macron and opposition to Marine Le Pen in power. Yeah. As you say, in, in a way, it was more about being anti-Le Pen than pro-Macron. I mean, from in my experience, cultural figures in France are sceptical about Macron. Would that be fair? I mean, certainly artists don't seem to be sort of actively pro-Macron. Well, I think it's more subtle than that. I've never seen any huge support from artists to any politician. (laughs) (laughs) So, But I think the idea of backing Marine Le Pen was extremely clear and uh, strong. I mean, otherwise, we wouldn't be having this discussion now. It would have been such a catastrophe that any conversation on art and especially on creation would have been extremely problematic. And yet was culture very prominent in the campaigns? It seems to me that that cultural issues were just not very sort of prominent in the campaigning by anyone. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the international situation plus the sanitary situation, I mean, COVID plus the war in Ukraine, obviously took a lot of space and put culture in the second row, probably. But at the same time, there was a very strong support in France from the government to the cultural world during and post-COVID, as opposed to the US, for instance. And I mean, at the same time, a big part of the programs in museums and of the staff of the museums was saved by a very strong help. There was at least 15 billion euros that were spent by the Ministry of Culture to, to support the whole cultural world during the sanitary crisis. It was before the campaign, actually, of course, but still, I think it, it means quite a lot. Yeah, would you say that was a sort of landmark detail of the sort of Macron government up to this point in terms of culture? Were there any other sort of strident moments in in terms of their cultural policy? Yeah, that was a a strong aspect. As you said, there's another thing that uh, should be emphasised is that the 
big commission program that was launched a few months ago that were called Monde Nouveau, New Worlds, to commission projects to artists. And that was very big. I mean, there are 264 projects that were selected, among which a lot of collectives. So that means that 430 artists are involved in that program. I received some news of the, the first project that are about to come out a few days ago. And it's um, supposed to last during the whole year of 2022. Uh, so that's another landmark that I think is quite uh, interesting. And what's interesting also is that it was announced that a second chapter of this program, Mon Nouveau, is announced at least. No one really knows how it's going to be organized because in the first one there was a jury led by Bernard Blisten, the former director of the Centre Pompidou, with also uh, Rebecca Lamarche-Vadel, for instance, who's the director of Lafayette Anticipation, the foundation of the Galerie Lafayette. And so no one really knows how the second chapter is going to be run, but it's supposed to exist. So that's another point. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about that programme? Is that across the arts, that money in visual arts will get a certain chunk? There's a strong presence of uh, visual arts in Mont Nouveau, but it was announced as something quite multidisciplinary. And there's a lot of collectives that applied to the, the programme and a lot of associations between visual artists and, let's say, philosophers. For instance, Emanuele Cuccia was in one of the groups with musicians, with also people from the cinema. So it was very open and very, very broad, though I think the core of that project was visual arts. That's really interesting. I suppose Blisten's involvement, Ben. I Blisten, was going to say, yeah. yeah his, his involvement sort of almost guarantees yeah. that yeah. multidisciplinary. If you, if you appoint somebody who's been involved with the Pompidou, yeah. a certain multidisciplinary element will, will exactly, come. Exactly, right? exactly. And also it goes with the fact that there is in this programme an idea of helping and protecting artists in the tough times we're going through. And in France, filmmakers, for instance, or let's say the industry of uh, book publishing is very protected. I mean, there are some administrative status. For artists, it's less the case. And also, this government is trying to organize this status of artists. And it's in the process, I would say. And I, I guess Mon Nouveau is also part of this thought on the protection of artists and in particular visual artists. The French cultural minister is Rosalind Bachelot. How is she perceived in terms of the arts community? Will she continue as the arts minister? What's the future for her? When she arrived in power, I think it was a very big surprise for the art world because she was not associated to visual arts, maybe more to music. But I think what has to be underlined is that Macron really kept his hands during the whole first administration on culture, especially for nomination and appointments of, for instance, a whole new generation recently of museum directors who have been appointed. And that's very good because there's a whole new bunch of people coming to power and thinking together. Roselyne Bachelot, no one knows whether she's going to stay. But I guess the question is going to be for the next administration, uh, whether the next minister has a real freedom or whether Macron keeps his hand on the subject. But it's always tough to be a Ministry of Culture in France. And I have to say that in the past years, many of them didn't stay very long in power. The main question for the coming months and years is going to be what the person chosen will have as a spectrum of uh, action. Why is Macron so determined to keep his hands on culture? What explains that? <laughs> I guess there's some personal answer to that question. He had a literary formation before he went to Lena, uh, which is the administrative school. And he's said to be assistant of Paul Ricoeur. So I think he has a taste for that field. He was, for instance, very involved in the invitation of Anselm Kiefer and Pascal Dussapin in Le Panthéon which was a, a year ago, I think. I think he was personally involved, and I know also that he was personally involved in the choice of, for instance, Laurence Descartes at Le Louvre and all the recent nominations that have uh, happened. Another notable element of the Macron administration's first few years, of course, was restitution, and we've seen the beginnings 
following the Savoir Sar report of works going back to their original homes, as it were. Do you think that will be a strong emphasis in the second administration? Yeah, probably. It was definitely a very important aspect of the first administration of Macron. And recently, some 26 works were restituted to Benin. I think probably the big stake of the second administration is going to consist in creating some methodology and some administrative frame to continue this policy and to organize this policy. I think uh, Macron said something about uh, some drums that is going to be given back to Ivory Coast. As you know, probably Jean-Luc Martinez, who's the former president of Le Louvre, who was appointed ambassador for restitutions. So that's also part, I think, of the whole scheme. I wanted to ask you more about the French scene generally, because we've talked a fair amount on this podcast about the fact that London and Paris are being perceived as London perhaps diminishing as an important centre and Paris rising. You're in Paris. So tell me, how does it feel from there? (laughs) Well, Paris is definitely a very good place to be in at this moment in terms of art and creation. There's a lot of artists. There's a lot of studios to begin with. There's also a lot of residencies that have been created, I mean, that have existed for a long time, but also some new ones that have appeared. I'm thinking, for instance, of a push, which is a strangely English-speaking name, though it's said push in French, uh, <laughs> spelled the English way, which has been a very uh, important place since confinement. It opened just before, but it, it was very active d- during confinement and ha- has just moved to a much bigger place in Aubervilliers, so just out of Paris, with um, more than 200 studios available for artists. And it's a very interesting system because it's organized by a company which is involved in urban development, Manifesto, and in urban projects associated to arts, which has very broad activities. So a lot of residencies, a lot of artists, a lot of studios, obviously also a lot of galleries arriving. I mean, times are tough. So there's also some galleries that have closed post-COVID and uh, post-sanitary crisis. But I'm sure our listeners uh, have heard of big galleries arriving in Paris in the past, let's say, five years. There was Max Hetzler, there was uh, Gagosian, there was White Cube, and more recently, David Zwerner. There's also Dvir Gallery from Israel that has just opened a few weeks ago. There's also Andrin Shipchenko, the Swedish gallery that has opened a small space. But I think it's Very interesting to see these people from abroad coming to Paris. And obviously, there's the huge uh, revolution. Let's see if it is a revolution of uh, FIAC disappearing and the moment of FIAC in the Grand Palais being taken by Art Basel and with the creation of this new fair that has this title, Paris Plus. And we'll see how how it does. It's a very young generation which has taken the head of the fair. I'm thinking of Clément de Lépine and Maxime Ourdequin, which are young people coming from either La Fiac or some galleries in Paris. And I think it's a big renewal, which is interesting, considering also that Jennifer Flay, who was um, the former director of FIAC, is probably going to come back as soon as she can, which also guarantees a kind of continuity in this uh, frame of some renewal. And so, of course, when we talk about the market, we know that that means that collectors are very happy and and galleries are very happy, potentially. Um, But what does it do for artists? And one of the things, I mean, you talked about Push and this idea of a kind of artist community on the outskirts of Paris. Do you think there's much of a sense among artists that Paris is happening, that Paris is a good place to be an artist right now? Yes, I think so, because I mean there are places to work. There are some studios. There's a kind of also emulation. There are people around, which is good for conversations and good to look at things. There's uh, exhibitions going on. I mean, there are museums are also remaining very active. So I think, yeah, and economically, I mean, in spite of the fact that there's a huge crisis everywhere in the world, I think it's still, it is a good place at the moment. I wanted to talk just briefly to end about institutions. We know that the Pompidou is about to close. It's going to have a period of renovation. 
for me as a tourist coming to Paris, the Pompidou has always been the centre of my world when I come to Paris. Obviously, there are now institutions like the Bourse, like the Fondation Louis Vuitton and others. How central is the Pompidou still to the visual arts scene? Or is it now enormously disparate and the influence kind of very much shared? Hmm. It's a very good question. I, I think I want to answer that it's uh, still very central. But probably there's space for a lot of uh, possibilities and the I mean I don't think because the bourse has opened the Pompidou should disappear it's fantastic that the bourse has opened it's fantastic to have the Vuitton Foundation the Lafayette Foundation but it doesn't mean that there's no space for uh, public institutions and for uh, Pompidou, but also for Petit Palais, for Musée d'Orsay, for Musée d'Art Moderne de la Ville de Paris, uh, for all these places which I think are essential to uh, our cultural life. The fact that the Pompidou is closing for a few years and also that the Grand Palais is closing for a few years and probably there's going to be a, a time when both uh, will be closed is extremely difficult, but I think it obliges the staff of these institutions to invent new ways of uh, existing. For instance, Laurent Lebon, uh, who's the new director, one of those people I was talking about, of the Centre Pompidou, is going to be excellent because I think his brain is um, constituted that way, to invent some new ways of using empty spaces like a parking lot that might be used in new ways to have the collection circulate in those years when the exhibition rooms are going to be closed. And there's probably also a big stake of having the collection circulate in territories like in other cities in France. And that's very important as well. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Ben. You can find Anael's writing at daily.artnewspaper.fr and her podcast, Phenomaton, is available wherever you're listening now. Coming up, I take a tour of Walter Sickert at Tate Britain and we hear about a Gordon Parks photograph in Pittsburgh. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. A monument of two workers commemorating the friendship between Russians and Ukrainians in central Kiev has been dismantled in the wake of the war. The bronze sculpture, which shows the workers holding a Soviet order of friendship, stands beneath a giant titanium People's Friendship arch erected in 1982 to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the Soviet Union. As Gareth Harris reports, the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, announced earlier this week that the installation would be removed. Klitschko said the arch would remain in place, but renamed the Arch of Freedom of the Ukrainian people. According to reports, it will be highlighted with the colours of the Ukrainian flag. A National Museum of Asian Pacific American History and Culture is a step closer to reality after the US House of Representatives unanimously approved a bill on Tuesday to create an eight-person commission to study the feasibility of establishing such an institution in Washington, D.C. As Benjamin Sutton writes, the bill now heads to the Senate. If approved, it would create a commission that would develop a fundraising plan, identify potential locations for the museum in the U.S. Capitol, and recommend whether or not the museum should be part of the Smithsonian Institution, which already operates 19 museums in Washington and New York City. The commission would have 18 months to complete the study. And finally, after we published our special Venice Biennale podcast last week, the awards for the Biennale's Golden and Silver Lions were announced. Sonia Boyce's British Pavilion won the Golden Lion for Best National Participation, and Simone Lee, who's representing the US in the Giardini, took the Golden Lion for Best Participant in Cecilia Alemani's exhibition, The Milk of Dreams. The Beirut-born artist Ali Sherry won the Silver Lion for Promising Young Participant. You can hear all about the Biennale in last week's episode, including an interview with Sonia Boyce. And Ali Sherry was a guest last month on our sister podcast a brush with which you can find wherever you're listening now you can read all these stories and more on the website or our app for ios and android which you can get from the app store or google play we'll be back after this the Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This May, Christie's presents two online auctions dedicated to science and natural history. The first, Moonshot Space Photography 1950-1999, featured a private collection of vintage photographs capturing the milestones in the history of space travel. 
Open for bidding online from 4th to 18th of May, this sale is led by a photograph of the first US spacewalk over the Gulf of Mexico in 1963, as well as a range of Apollo 11 shots, including the first photo of humanity on the moon. The second sale, sculpted by nature, fossils, minerals and meteorites, features naturally formed artworks ranging from geological formations to billion-year-old fossils. Open for bidding online between the 12th and 26th of May, this sale is led by a specimen of desert sand turned to glass millions of years ago by a lightning strike. Find out more about the sales at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, Walter Sickert remains one of the leading figures in British art from the late 19th century to the mid-20th century. Born in 1860 in Munich, Sickert moved to London with his family as a child and after a spell in the theatre was apprenticed to James Abbott McNeil Whistler before embracing the Impressionist and Post-Impressionist revolutions in France and fashioning a singular style that's influenced generations of artists since. In recent years, his popular reputation has been hugely affected by allegations that he was a suspect in the Jack the Ripper murders in London in 18. a theory doggedly pursued by the novelist Patricia Cornwell. This week, a major survey of Sickert's work opened at Tate Britain in London before travelling to Paris later in the year. I went to the gallery to take a tour of some of its key paintings with Thomas Kennedy, assistant curator at Tate Britain and one of the organisers of the show. Thomas, we're in the first room of the show and we're with a self-portrait. It's really quite a dramatic self-portrait, even though it's actually quite small. We learn that he's a theatre man. Is he playing a role here, or is this a portrait of him and his life? Well, it's certainly a very early painting. It's from 1896, and he had been an actor before he had been an artist. So he'd been on stage in minor roles, but then turned towards being an artist himself. It's a very dark and brooding painting, and you can see it's a very dark, sombre palette and shows what Sickert's style was like very early in his career. That style is very liquid. How much is that to do with the fact that he's apprenticed, effectively, to Whistler? I think it's, you can very much see the influence of Whistler during this time. But this exhibition shows how his style changed over the years. And in this first room, you can see, in a matter of years, he really changed the way that he was painting. In terms of the way that he is engaging with us... He's staring directly at us in almost in a sort of accusatory way, isn't it? It's such a dramatic gaze directly into us. I think what you can sort of judge here is that he's looking at himself in a mirror. So you can see he's looking at himself over his shoulder into a mirror, looking him straight in the eyes, straight into the eyes of the viewer as well. And it's a really deep, penetrating stare. And it shows how he wanted to view himself at this time. One of the things about Sickert is the extraordinary materiality of the paint. Throughout his career, the paint is such a vividly active material on the surface. Here, right at the start of his career, effectively, that materiality is so present. Tell us about that. And throughout his career, you can really see how he used that paint, his experimentations with light and colour. It's something that just shows his mastery of the use of paint over his career. And it starts here. Let's go into the next room. Yeah. So now we're in a room full of music hall paintings, and this is Little Dot Hetherington. Tell us about this picture. Yes, so it just happens to be one of my favourite works, and it shows a young performer on stage pointing up to people in the gallery, while in the foreground you can see audience members in the stalls. And it really encapsulates everything you need to know about Sickert, how he experimented with light and colour, unusual viewpoints, and really just shows the realistic representations of music halls. It shows his interest in popular entertainments at the time. Um, Tell us about that, because obviously it's an unusual subject in British painting at that moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's something that he learnt from Degas in France, actually. So Degas' Café Concerts. And then upon returning to Britain, he decided, I want to paint musicals, which were the nightly entertainments for people in London. I mean, in that sense, how were they perceived by the critics who saw them at the time? Were they seen as a sort of scandalous or sort of uncouth kind of subject? They were not well received at the time. It's because they show working class entertainments. They weren't full of working class people. It was for everyone. But uh, it was seen as a place of debauchery, let's say. Mm. But in the following years, his musical paintings really steered the course of British art in this country and the way people painted. Indeed. I want to talk about the colour because one of the things about Sickert's paintings that I always find so astonishing is, is his palette. On the one hand, there is a certain gloom to so many of his paintings, but then, as you say, there are extraordinary effects of light, but also vivid colours suddenly burst out, and here we're seeing lots of oranges and reds, aren't we? Yeah, so I think he was very much still influenced by 
the way he had painted with Whistler, but through uh, his connection to Degas, he was really starting to infuse colour into his paintings and musicals. There was a plethora of colours really for him to pick out. And he went to musicals every single night. So it's something that he was very aware of and was very aware of depicting when he was creating his paintings. I wanted to talk about the space in the pictures because that's another really remarkable element. We're sitting in the stalls. Tell us what we're looking at. Yes, so it's, it's, it's fascinating. You know, you see the performer on the stage in the white dress singing up to the gallery, but you also have the audience members in the stalls in the foreground. But in the left side of the painting, you can actually see a mirror, which is creating a very odd viewpoint and creating new directions for the ways that people see the painting which was quite radical at the time Hmm. and can we see the wings there too she's on the stage dot is on the stage but is that figures in the wings too you can see the wings as well so you can see behind the stage and on stage and in front of the stage as well so he's really describing the full experience not only his own i guess excitement at seeing this but the nature of the theatrical space of it and he's also drawn upon his own experience as an actor so he is reliving what it's like to be on stage and the entire experience of doing so and also being part of the audience and engaging with performers on stage. Let's go to the next room. So we're now in a room full of landscape pictures or cityscape pictures. We've got lots of Dieppe subjects here but we've also got Venice subjects. I was standing in front of St Mark's Basilica last week and I have to say he's caught the extraordinary light Mm. as it hits that building. So tell us about this. Yeah, so Sickert was quite partial to making paintings of the same scenes over and over. He was very much inspired by Monet's Rouen Cathedral series, Mm -hmm. and he created some works in Dieppe, but also in Venice, and he lived in Venice for a time. And you can see these paintings, one of which is from the Tate Collection, shows St. Mark's Basilica at different times of the day, and how light caught the building at those different times. But he also infused it with different types of colour as well, Mm. experimenting with colour, which is just so fascinating to see. One of the things that he's caught so extraordinary, I think, is that sort of glistering quality of the mosaics and the arches above the entrance to the building Mm. and at the top of the dome and everything else. He's really good at the little, little highlights that light up a picture, isn't he? Yeah, he was so committed to realism. So he really wanted to bring out exactly what was being shown, what he saw in that present moment. And these glistening moments are just how the sun was setting in Venice at the time. Is it right that the, the cityscapes and landscapes were effectively his most saleable pictures? They were the thing that sort of he earned most from in his life? You could say that. I, <laughs> I think it's very difficult to quantify, but uh, there's a lot of works now in public collections, so we've been very fortunate that over 70 public and private collections have lent to this exhibition. But, I mean, did he have a notion of his own market? Was he painting multiple different types of picture for more than just progressing his artistic development, if you like? I don't think Sicker was ever really driven by the art market at all. He was always sort of doing it for himself and his experimentations with light. So these views of Venice, which he did over and over again, are really for himself and his learning how to change the way that a painting is shown. As you say, he's responding to Monet to a certain degree here in the Rouen subjects, but it's a very different kind of approach, isn't it? With Monet, it feels almost programmatic. Mm -hmm. One doesn't sense that with Sickert in the same way. Even though he's repeating the image, it feels like he wants to change the picture up each time in a different way. Yes, I think he was very consciously choosing times of the day and different ways to engage with the same subject over and over again. And it's just fascinating to see in this exhibition that you have works side by side, which show just how he was pushing the boundaries of painting. Yeah. Let's go to the next room. We're in a room full of nudes, and one of the things about Sickert's nudes is that they are very much naked people as opposed to academic nudes, and that was a massive concern of his, wasn't it? It was something he cared about hugely. Yeah, it's something that he had learnt from Degas and Bonnard, and he had brought that style of painting to this country, and it was seen as quite radical and revolutionary. It was realistic women in realistic settings, which hadn't been shown before. They were either mythological or idealised beforehand, but these are real women in real places. 
He's really fascinated by this real-life event, which is the Camden Town murder, and he does a series which are called the Camden Town Murder Series. He's not depicting the event, though, is he? No, it's a, sometimes he actually attributes the title of the Camden Town Murder after the painting was made. So this painting here, the Camden Town Murder, or What Shall We Do for the Rent, was actually called What Shall We Do for the Rent before the event. And then he applied the title to the painting afterwards. So why did he do that? Was it a sort of desire for publicity? What was, why did he tap into this event in Camden? I think, I think he was very aware of what was happening in newspapers at the time and he was aware of how saleable they could be if he attached this title to the work. And so what we're looking at here is a man sitting on the end of the bed forlornly while a naked woman lies beside him. And we, in the original context, as in what shall we do for the rent, it could be she's sleeping and he is fretting. Mm-hmm. But of course, if you then position it within the context of the Camden Town murder, it, the idea of this picture completely shifts, doesn't it? Yes, it's something that Sicker was always keen to, avoiding absolutes in his paintings. It's very much a conversation between a man and a woman, the way I view it, of course. But, uh, you know, it can be seen as a dead woman on a bed. And it's the way the audience in interpret it, this painting. And how did the audience interpret it in Sickert's own time? Well, I don't think they were well received when he first showed them because it is a new way of painting. It's for a very conservative Britain at the time with these idealised and mythological beings. These women were not well received, but actually it changed the way that we paint news in this country. Artists like Lucian Freud and Francis Bacon, they were very much inspired by Sickert's practice. One of the things about this room is that, of course, coming at it in the 21st century, we're looking at this with a very different kind of moral viewpoint, if you want to say. At the time, as you say, they were received by the very conservative British press and public at that time, and it was the woman's morals which were questioned to a certain degree. There was this idea that these women might be prostitutes or whatever that was problematic. Now I think a sort of 21st century concern is about the male gaze and about the male attitude in these pictures. And therefore, what is Sickert's attitude? You know, he's, he's obviously got this unflinching eye when he's portraying nudes in this room. What can we say, what can we detect about his attitude towards women and this sort of frankly very stark male gaze that we're confronting? Yeah, I think the male gaze is something that definitely needs to be discussed, but I think the women do have their own agency. They may have been sex workers, or they may have been just friends and models of Sickert. But Sickert certainly paid them for the services to be able to be a model for one of his paintings. So we do actually know a number of the names of these models. So we believe this is Hubby and Marie. But yes, it's certainly a conversation that we need to have. We know that he was fascinated by the Jack the Ripper murders, and Patricia Cornwell, the novelist, has run with this idea that Sickert may be Jack the Ripper. You addressed that in the catalogue, I know. So what is the official position of Tate on the whole Jack the Ripper rumours? Well, it's, it's a very exciting story, but it's just a story. There's no evidence to prove that Walter Sickert was Jack the Ripper at all. And experts of Walter Sickert don't believe it either. In this exhibition, we don't discuss these baseless rumours, but instead focus on his artworks and how important his artistic legacy was. But in a way, it's kind of clouded the sort of reputation of Sicker in terms of he's become almost more famous because of Patricia Cornwell's you know, accusations than he has for his paintings. So is this show a kind of response to that to a certain degree? Well, I think in the, in the era of true crime that we're living in, I think it's, uh, it's certainly a fun story, but actually there's no basis to it whatsoever. And we're really not discussing at all, apart from in the exhibition catalogue, which you're very welcome to buy. <laughs> OK, and I wanted to also talk about the influence of Sickert in the many, many decades after his death. You have got a Lucian Freud hanging in the next room. His influence, it seems to me, is, is extraordinarily broad, because when I think of Sickert and his influence, I think of Howard Hodgkin, for instance, who was a great fan of, yeah, uh, of yeah. Sickert's and in a way sort of picked up on his artistic language as much as the kind of that very stark gaze that we were talking about earlier on. But you wanted to really explore that in the show to actually have an example of his legacy here. Yes, yeah, so I think it's really important to show that artists like Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud were keenly inspired by Sickert. And it, if they hadn't been connected to Sickert, 
I think Sikret's legacy really reverberates throughout art history in this country. Up until now, there are many contemporary artists that are inspired by Sikret, and we hope they can come and see the show and be inspired once again. And I was struck by the fact that you've even invited a couple of contemporary artists to write on Sikret for the catalogue. Yeah, so uh, Samaya Critchlow is writing about nudes in the catalogue, and Kay Donaghy is uh, looking at the portraiture as well, which she explores in her own practice. Right, let's move into the last room. So we're now in a room which is all about Sickert's use of photography in the last years of his career. And you can actually wonderfully see the grid which he used to mark up this painting here, which is of King Edward VIII. Tell us about this. Yes, so Sickert, in the last years of his life, was still innovating once again. He was using newspaper photographs, small black and white photographs, and enlarging them and then infusing them with colour to create these rather colossal works. Hmm. And one of the things that really strikes me about this picture is how rough the canvas is. Was that a sort of common technique of Sickert? Yeah, I think at this stage of his life that he was really quite interested in this very rough way of painting. And it's very fine because you can also see, as you say, this grid technique in the way that he created the painting, drawing squares on the small photograph and then enlarging it to create this huge two-metre canvas. Obviously, one of the things it seems to be telling us is that Sicker is very interested in a different form of royal portraiture. We're looking at a portrait of a king, a very brief king, uh, (laughs) now a famous rogue of British culture. And obviously, this is a very different kind of painted portrait from those that would have been the official portraits of that era. Yeah, he's, he's not looking very royal at all, but it looks quite uncertain in the painting. And so I think that's the beauty of photography. You capture a person in that moment, regardless of who they are. And Sicker was very interested by this photograph and created this colossal painting from it. Is it another sort of legacy of Edgar Degas? Because, of course, Degas was using photographs in his own work. Is this where Sicker sort of took that from and developed Yeah, and I think before that, you can see Sicker was sketching like Degas was as well. So it it shows how both of them were evolving with technologies happening at the time. And this shows popular culture again in 1930s. And rather nicely in the vitrine nearby, you've got a a report in which the novelty of this is really spelt out because it actually says a novel portrait of the king, picture painted from a press photograph. So it really was perceived as this kind of radical way of depicting royalty or depicting anything, frankly. Yes, and in this other article below hand, you can actually see that the photographer hadn't been told by Sickert if he could use his photograph. So Sickert was certainly taking photographs and creating the paintings regardless. But uh, in the end, the photographer was very pleased to be immortalised in this work. It was really interesting because actually there's ongoing debates about, you know, artists stealing images Mm. and appropriating them for their own means. And it's amazing how that debate has rumbled on since the first use of photographs. Yeah, this is the 1930s, so it's, you know, almost 100 years of, of that conversation. One of the things, again, is, of course, about Sickert's engagement with, I guess, academic histories of art. And it seems to me that the photograph is another means of distancing himself from that, isn't it? Yeah, I think he was very much a teacher at this time as well as an artist. So he was looking for new ways for his students to engage with painting once again. For example, the the King Edward VIII is really a masterclass in a new way of painting. And so ultimately, this room is the sort of final stages of career. How did he end his life? Was he much celebrated? At the end of his life, he was very much celebrated, but he went sort of into obscurity in the following years. Uh, it's only in the past few years that he's really rose to prominence again as one of the most important and really influential artists of the modern era. Well, Thomas, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Walter Sickert is at Tate Britain until the 18th of September. It then tours to the Petit Palais in Paris from the 14th of October to the 29th of January 2023. And finally, it's time for this episode's Work of the Week. This weekend, the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh opens the exhibition Gordon Parks in Pittsburgh, 1944 to 1946, which explores Parks' photographs of the Panola Inc. grease plant in Pittsburgh and its workers. Our associate editor, Tom Seymour, spoke to Dan Lears, the curator of the exhibition, about one of the images in the show taken in the Cooper's room of the factory in March 1944. Dan, the photograph you've picked by Gordon Parks, do you want to... Tell us why you selected it. It was the first photograph you saw by Parks from Pittsburgh, I think. Where are you from? That's right, yeah. When I uh, first saw this picture, the title was simply Pittsburgh 1944. And I wasn't aware that Parks had photographed in Pittsburgh at all. 
And when I saw this picture, which I think is such an incredible, iconic image, I, I just had to know more as to whether or not uh, he had made more pictures here and what the story was behind this one. So I reached out to the Gordon Parks Foundation just outside of New York City and said, hey, can you tell me some more about this picture? And they said, you know, we don't have a lot of information on it ourselves. Let us do a bit of digging and we'll get back to you. And when they did, we realized that, in fact, this was a major assignment that Parks had undertaken. And there were several hundred pictures from the time. And I think it's a, a critical moment both in the history of Pittsburgh, the history of this country, and certainly in uh, the trajectory of Parks's career. He was 32, I think, when he took this picture. Right. He was born in Kansas in 1912, one of 15 kids. His father was a farmer, so quite a humble beginnings. And I think he lived on the streets basically from the age of 15. What was going on in his life when he took this picture at age 32? Right. He is very early on in his career. And I think that that backstory, his upbringing, as you mentioned, was incredibly important to his uh, artistic vision. He had experienced segregation growing up and had experienced extreme difficulties and hardships and yet persevered through it all, working all kinds of different jobs. Uh, he was a waiter. He was a porter on a rail car. And in fact, it was on that rail car traveling from Chicago to Seattle that he first saw the photographs from the Farm Security Administration of conditions during the Great Depression. And he was very much struck by those photographs and the the human stories that they told. And so just after seeing them, he went to a pawn shop, purchased a camera, had the pawn shop owner show him how to use it and set off taking pictures, completely self-taught and just flying by the seat of his pants. And yet from a very early point in his career, he had this incredible ability to embed himself in the scenarios and situations in which he was working and really get to know his subjects. So this particular photograph was made just as Parks was finishing work for Roy Stryker, the gentleman who had started the Farm Security Administration photographic efforts, had eventually hired Parks on as part of the Office of War Information, and then eventually was hired by the Standard Oil Company to create a picture library for their corporation that documented all of the plants and workers around the world that, that fell under the Standard Oil corporate umbrella. And Parks was one of the first photographers that Stryker brought with him to help start this library and sent him to Pittsburgh in March of 1944 to photograph the Panola grease plant, which uh, was producing lubricants to supply troops on the front lines during World War II. And I think this particular picture sums up so much about this moment as well as this specific factory. The story goes that General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who later became President Eisenhower, was leading up the efforts in North Africa and wired back to the War Department in the U.S. saying, I need a special kind of lubricant for my tanks and trucks and materiel that will be suitable for the harsh conditions of North Africa, but also uh, well geared towards amphibious landings in Europe as we uh, begin our assault there. And the U.S. government turned to Standard Oil, who said, yes, we'll come up with a new formula. They did. And when they first started to put the formula into production at a plant in Baltimore, they had such a tremendous need for this that it broke the equipment. So then they turned to this Pittsburgh plant, the Panola Grease plant, which was able in a matter of 48 hours to produce some 90,000 gallons of this special, what's now called Eisenhower grease. And this gentleman in this picture is, is a key part of of that process. Gordon Parks is obviously black and the, the man in the photograph is also black. This photograph was taken in 1944, so 20 years before the civil rights movement. So it strikes me as remarkable that Parks was able to have the sort of career that he had given what was happening in America at the time. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think 
again, because of his keen eye and his ability to embed himself and, and get the story, Parks was given a, a great amount of, of leeway by Stryker and in turn by the clients that Stryker was working for. And that's certainly the case here where Parks was documenting certainly the production of this grease, the industry of this plant, because that is a part of the story. But I think more importantly, he's focusing on telling that story through the faces of the individuals. And having worked menial jobs himself, having experienced difficulties in racism and segregation, he knew a lot about what these people had experienced. And so he is setting out to try to tell those kinds of stories, what we might call the humanistic stories, with his photographs. And in part, he's doing that through his actual uh, choreography within the picture. So it's important to remember that even though this looks like a candid scene, it in fact was highly staged. We know from publications that Parks put out just after this picture was first made that he used several flashes in order to create the right lighting conditions. He waited for the worker to turn his face and the barrel so that all of these elements came together to tell this incredibly powerful story. And you can see the grease on the gentleman's apron and on the, the side of the barrel that he's cleaning. This is a difficult job. This is a dangerous job. This barrel is coming out of a lye solution, which is cleaning it. And these were the kinds of conditions that black workers were experiencing on a regular basis to earn fairly minimal wages. And yet Parks, in a way, is is heroicizing it by having the smoke and the steam from the plant also exposed with his flashes. And it becomes this incredibly powerful tale of this gentleman's overcoming these difficult circumstances to continue to help with the war effort. And I think it's just such a powerful statement. How has he been reassessed, do you think, recently, Gordon Parks? And additionally, what do these photographs say about Pittsburgh that hasn't really been told before? Yeah, well, I think this particular body of work comes at a really pivotal moment in both the nation's history, but also in Parks's career. Obviously, in 1944, the U.S. is fully wading into World War II, and all of the troops overseas are requiring uh, the full industrial might back home in order to keep them supplied with the material that they need. And Pittsburgh was certainly one of the industrial capitals of the world, and definitely in the United States, and was producing so much of the, the supplies that that these troops needed. And so uh, although these individuals weren't necessarily on the front lines, their work was equally as important to the Allied victory. And in addition, on a more personal level, because this was an assignment for Standard Oil, Parks is now learning what it means, having already learned what it means to have a government client working with Stryker at the Office of War Information. He's now understanding what it means to have a corporate client. And of course, that comes with its own exigencies and its own requirements and its own uh, restrictions. And Parks had this incredible ability to both deliver the pictures that the client wanted and stay true to his intentions and his artistic vision. And I don't think it's a coincidence that only one year after completing his second visit to Pittsburgh to wrap up the story in September of 1946, Parks becomes the first black staff photographer for Life magazine. And suddenly the stories that he was telling on a more sort of isolated level with Standard Oil, he's now able to share nation and even universally through the platform of Life magazine. And the kinds of stories, the kinds of individuals that he has been photographing for most of his career are now suddenly thrust upon a, a much wider stage. And I think that's when Parks really comes into his own as an artist and perhaps as embodied in this photograph, that directorial style that I alluded to where he's using multiple flashes and waiting for all of the pictorial elements to coalesce into this perfect scene. I think that, of course, then plays into his role uh, later in life as an actual film director uh, when he goes on to make a movie like Shaft. So to see all of those elements uh, wrapped up in this single picture and, and by extension in this exhibition, I think it's an amazing intersection that tells so many different important stories. Absolutely agreed. We spoke about the Farm Security Administration briefly. For listeners that aren't 
fully aware of the significance that that government body had on the history of photography. I mean, for example, the Farm Security Administration was really significant when it comes to Dorothea Lange and pictures like Migrant Mother, which is one of the most famous pictures of the 20th century. So tell us about the FSA. And in addition, can you see something like the FSA happening today in, in this era? Or is it something particular to that part of history? Yeah, well, absolutely. The the FSA was critical to the establishment of documentary photography, telling these individual stories and sharing them on a scale that resonated across the country. And of course, Dorothea Lang, Walker Evans, a number of photographers got their start during this time. And it was, in fact, created in part as a way to give photographers and artists an income source during the Great Depression when so many Americans were feeling the hardships of life. And so people like Lang traveled to places like the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma and sought out these individuals and these individual stories that they knew could sort of embody the experiences that many Americans were feeling. And I think um, that's exactly what Parks experienced when he saw these pictures uh, in a magazine that was left behind by a rider on the train where he was working. He was immediately gripped by the faces of these individuals and the the difficulties and the hardships that was written across them. And so he, I think, set out to make pictures like that and to tell stories like that and specifically to tell stories as a black photographer that other photographers either didn't have access to or simply weren't interested in making. And I think that in and of itself is a major contribution to the history in that he is gaining access to and photographing uh, people in places that were otherwise left out of mainstream media. In terms of whether or not something like a government agency like FSA could continue today or function today, I think with the advent of digital photography and and smartphones, photojournalism in a lot of ways has turned into a much more civilian-led undertaking. And with the prevalence of this technology, you have people who maybe weren't trained as photographers, but who have that same kind of access that Parks was seeking out, who are making pictures that are resonating and and getting picked up and shared throughout social media and making a, a difference around the world. And so certainly agencies like Magnum are still quite relevant and still sending great photographers to cover important stories. And I think those stories are being supplemented by ones told just by everyday people with their smartphones who are bearing witness to both great joy and great tragedy around the world. Gordon Parks is no longer with us. He died in 2006. You've spent a lot of time with his imagery. If I could bring the Gordon Parks who was making these photographs in his early 30s into the room you're in now, and you can ask him a question, something that has evaded you by looking at his photographs that you'd want to know, what would your first question be? Well, would we be so lucky to be privileged <laughs> to be in the presence of of Parks really coming into his own as an artist? I, I just think it would be a tremendous opportunity. And I think what I would want to know from him was how he could so strategically balance what the client wanted on an assignment with what he felt needed to be said. This is something that photojournalists and and artists more broadly have grappled with ever since work for hire began. You want to tell the story that the client needs. And in fact, you might not even get paid if you don't tell that story. And yet you have to stay true to yourself uh, as an artist. And Parks was an absolute master of that. And I, I would love to hear from him as to whether or not there were strategies that he was using, what sorts of communication he was undertaking in order to achieve those. And, you know, he probably being the modest guy that he was would say something like, oh, I don't know, I just did what I do. But I have a feeling that there was a great deal more strategy and life experience that he brought to bear to help him really achieve that incredible balance. Dan, thanks very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And best of luck with the exhibition. Thanks so much, Tom. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Gordon Parks in Pittsburgh, 1944-1946, is at the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh from tomorrow, 30th of April, until the 7th of August. 
And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Anael, Thomas, Tom and Dan. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.